Hello. Hello, I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the mac and cheese and movies. Mmm. Comfort Films Podcast. Season 2. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Comfort Films Podcast. This is week 4 of our science fiction month. And we have decided to go straight back to the grandpappy of sci-fi film. <laughs> yep, yep. We went back to the old country, kids. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to be visiting a place that many of us have gone to and which all of our favorite science fiction films have certainly gone to. This month, anyway, yes. Yeah. So today we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the 1968 film directed by Stanley Kubrick. Screenplay by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, famous science fiction writer. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as always, when we do a theme around here, we're talking, you know, for days about what we're going to do. <laughs> because we like movies so much that it's always super hard to narrow it down. And with science fiction, since we really haven't done a whole ton of it, it was really difficult because we absolutely love science fiction. Yeah, I'm crazy with science fiction. I yeah. mean, if you take a look at our movies that we own, there was so much science fiction on the shelves that's like, what can we fit in this yeah. time? We could have done a six-month series on science fiction. <laughs> we could have Like, a not a joke. <laughs> no, we could have had a five-year mission, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking and talking and talking, and what came back to us and what kept making sense to us was to talk about 2001, because even though I may not have actually watched this movie as much as I've watched a bunch of other sci-fi movies, this is like the movie that legitimized science fiction. Yes. And there would not be a Star Wars. There would not really be Star Trek, although Star Trek did start um, before 2001, sort of. <laughs> it came from the same kind of zeitgeist of the 60s, uh, where people, you know, were really interested in space exploration, which sadly kind of stopped after that. Uh, but, you know, the whole deal is you wouldn't have the science fiction burst of film that happened in the 70s, 80s, and on to today if it wasn't for 2001. Because what Stanley Kubrick did was gargantuan. Yeah. I mean, he kind of created in this production design you know, how we look at spaceships on on screen, you know, and how we think about space on screen. And it's such a huge undertaking. I mean, they started filming this, I believe, in like 1966 or something, and they didn't finish it and for two years because he spent so much time working on matte paintings and working on all this other stuff. You know, and these, like, models and just everything. And it's crazy. And what he was able to come up with is amazing. It's also weird because there's, like, no talking for, like, you know, a great portion of the movie, which makes it a little weird. But in a way that works because it makes you feel like you're in space. What else are you doing in space, you know? I think in honor of all the silence in 2001, we're just <laughs> going to have just a very brief moment of silence. That was great. That was great. That we could have just done like 20 minutes now, 20 minutes later, like <laughs> in 2001. But, you know, unfortunately it doesn't translate as well on a podcast. No, no. I guess we could breathe into the mic a little bit, <laughs> you know. I kind of felt like when uh, Gary Lockwood is out, you know, in a space suit breathing, it felt kind of like Darth Vader-esque. 
Okay. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I, we could spend probably a whole episode just talking about how this movie influenced other movies, but I think, you know, that'll just be a portion of the discussion. We'll try to truncate it. We'll do our best, but we're not known for brevity. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> It's not really into that. Okay, so, I mean, the thing that I was really thinking about when we went into watching this this time is kind of this philosophical time that this was made. I don't think you would get a movie like this at any other time because in the 60s, you know, the space race was going on. It was like this huge thing. Countries were like all, you know, invested in going to space and everybody kind of had this really um, confident kind of excitement about this. And, you know, everybody would recognize that we have problems in the world at the time. But there was this real, you know, positivity about this happening, even though it was a competition. I mean, Russia and the U.S. were, like, competing yes. with each other big time. Space Olympics. Yes, but it was just, like, you know, it was it was really all about advancing the future of humans in general. Um, you know, this pretty handily ended very shortly after this 2001 era with the Vietnam War and this oil crisis and all these things that happened in the 70s. So it's funny to me to think about 2001 being like the year, you know, because that's 22 years ago now. Well, and they thought we'd be so much further along than this. And honestly, if we had kept the pace that we were at at the time, you know, in the 60s, probably we would be. Probably we would be colonizing the moon or something. But we had a few setbacks. Oh, we did. We did. I mean, something I want to bring up since we're talking about, you know, the space race. Now, this is interesting. So, JFK was presented with one of Arthur C. Clarke's books, and that book was Exploration of Space. So, this 1951 book, Exploration of Space, given to JFK, and that made him think, wow, we can go to the moon. Oh, wow. I know. I That's know. Amazing. So, it's like there is so much influence that comes from this film. I mean, we have two geniuses, you know, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, you know, each in their own right, and they're working together. So when you have two forces like that coming together to create a project, you're going to get something that no one has ever seen. Now, their working relationship could be very difficult sometimes um, because Arthur C. Clarke, you know, he was very interested in working on this novel because the idea was Kubrick and Clarke said, let's make a book. And if we make a book, that will basically be our Bible and we'll build the script off of that. So they started working on the book, but while they were working on the book, Kubrick went into production. And so Clark would try to be in contact with Kubrick and try to get notes and work on it. But Kubrick would be so deep in production, he couldn't always come back. Mm. You know, so Clark said, you know, Kubrick would tell me he's not dragging his feet. He just has so much that he's doing, it's difficult. And ultimately, the book actually came out after the film. And there are differences between the book and the film. Uh, both, though, of course, still equally brilliant. Yeah, in and the, they illuminate each other in yes. a way. Yeah. And in the end, the book was actually only credited to Arthur C. Clarke. Um, that's the way that they wanted it. Although the screenplay is credited to both. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because we actually read the book also. Mm -hmm. um, so we, well, we listened to the audio book 
on our commuting. Um, and it was really interesting because I've seen this the movie hmm, several times. We saw it. We've seen it at home several times. We just bought the 4K Blu-ray. Yeah. We saw it on 70 millimeter yes, at Area yes. Theater in Santa Monica a few years ago. Um, but I've never, ever, ever read the book, and <laughs> it's really funny because the book did really illuminate some things for me that I always had kind of questioned. Like, for example, I think that reading the book makes the prehistory sequence a lot more, you know, understandable and interesting. Um, I have to be honest with you, like, when I first saw the movie... I'm like, isn't this a space movie? Is this bullshit? <laughs> well, know? you know, I'm a big fan of monkeys. So I'm like, monkeys, all right, cool. And then it was like killing, and I was like, no, fuck. You know, like monkeys hanging out. That, that's what I wanted. You just wanted it to be a good time, yeah. No, I wanted it to be fun with the monkeys. And really, it was all about, you know, them advancing. But the way that they advance because of this monolith was in my opinion, not very positive, right? No. You know, they learn how to kill. They learn how to kill. They learn how to destroy. They learn how to, you know, create their own territory, right? That That's what we get. Yeah. So it, it's just like learning how to kill, I feel, is the biggest thing. I feel that's the biggest thing that they learned from this monolith. Well, I think that you could possibly make the argument as well that the killing is what also made them to start be omnivorous. Right, right. And eating meat um, probably made their brains grow bigger, you know, and they were getting different nutrients, and that's what enabled evolution to speed up um, because of the different food that they were getting, and they weren't fighting for food. It's also made them learn how to cook things with fire, probably. So I think that it just is kind of like um, meant to symbolize a great step forward in evolution, and there are positives and negatives that can come with that. Now, you make a great point, because what they talk about, actually, in the beginning of the book, well, I, you know what, let me just read just the, the opening of the book. It's just a couple paragraphs. I just feel like it really will bring to life our discussion here, which shows how much more the book gives you, particularly at the beginning. Okay, so the first chapter of the 2001 Space Odyssey book is called The Road to Extinction, and it does a really good job of setting up the scene, so I'll just read to you briefly now. The drought had lasted now for 10 million years and the reign of the terrible lizards had long since ended. Here on the equator, in the continent which would one day be known as Africa, the battle for existence had reached a new climax of ferocity, and the victor was not yet in sight. In this barren and desiccated land, only the small or the swift or the fierce could flourish, or even hope to survive. The man-apes of the veldt were none of these things, and they were not flourishing. Indeed, they were already far down the road to racial extinction. About fifty of them occupied a group of caves overlooking a small parched valley, which was divided by a sluggish stream fed from snows in the mountains two hundred miles to the north. In bad times, the stream vanished completely, and the tribe lived in the shadow of thirst. So we can tell right there 
we're not doing well. You know, they are starving. They need food. You know, we're introduced to, you know, the main ape, main primate, if you will, and his name is Moonwatcher. And we don't even get the name in the movie. No. And yeah, but in the book, you get like all this inner monologue of Moonwatcher. Yes. So you get to understand what Moonwatcher is thinking and what Moonwatcher is feeling and how he reacts when he sees like this violence. You know, it's like necessary to survival. Mm -hmm. And he's concerned you know he's worried about his tribe you know and i think that it is interesting like i wasn't super interested i still am not necessarily <laughs> whenever i watch 2001 i'm like oh yeah the ape stuff yeah 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 yeah. and it's not that it's badly done it's actually quite interesting you can see a lot of art in the map paintings that were done um and different things that are happening here but and the acting is amazing because it's all these people who were just like movement experts yes the person that played moon watcher talked about how deep they went into the character and how important it was for each of these apes to have their own individual personality so if you look down the line in the film you can actually see in these big group shots every single person has their own motivations their own reactions their own feelings and it's it really brings the whole thing to life I mean, at the beginning of the book, once again, something we don't see is Moonwatcher's father has died. And he takes his father's body up to this area to be eaten by hyenas, you know? And it's just like he doesn't fully register that it's his father. His brain hasn't developed enough yet. And that speaks exactly to what you were saying, Georgia, that they needed something to help stimulate that brain growth. And yeah, I I mean, we really understand a lot more about their motivations and it's done so well in the book it's so smoothly told that you fully understand the progression yeah and i think they did as probably well as you could in the movie with that piece because you don't have dialogue you don't have you know and he chose not to go with voiceover which i think was the right choice same um because then that would be kind of intrusive And he also chose not to explain what's happening, you Mm -hmm. know, which in that case, you're kind of like, what? (laughs) Um, But it does kind of make you pay attention. And so when uh, the the giant uh, monolith shows up again, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, here we are again. And and it's like showed up at another moment of a great leap forward for humanity. Um, But yeah, I think that they did a good job. I was very impressed with you know, the the movements of these people and how much they were able to make each character have a distinct personality. It was kind of like Andy Circus before Andy Circus. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the makeup, particularly for the time, excellent. You know? Really excellent. Yeah. yeah, they really brought it out. I mean, something else that I think would be interesting to note is that 2001 was also inspired by some of Clark's own short stories. Uh, one of which was called The Sentinel. And this short story deals with the discovery of an ancient alien artifact that was left on the moon a long, long time ago. And another work of Clark's that comes to mind is a piece called Encounter in the Dawn. This is a short story which deals with aliens of higher intelligence trying to guide a civilization to a more advanced level. And that's exactly what we have, you know, at the beginning of this. And you know what this makes me think of? Because I always take a 
a moment to discuss it when I can, is Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so, Gorn, right? The Gorn? Exactly. No, no, no. <laughs> um, no, but I was thinking about, you know, these same types of ideas that Arthur Clarke was writing about well prior to this film and that they're looking at in this movie are really, you know, again, goes back to the zeitgeist thing, the same kind of things that were going on in the original series, which had a lot less money than this movie. Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing kind of to watch this and then to watch the original series of Star Trek and see, you know, what they were doing differently because of the constraints of a television show versus a, a very large film. But they're still dealing with, like, the same type of stories. I mean, the Federation doesn't really interfere with with civilizations until they've reached a certain point in development. That's what the Prime Directive is. Um, but they do observe, you know, and report. And their purpose is space exploration and learning, you know, about all this stuff. So I thought that was really cool. And there's also you know, ancient alien artifacts right. that always pop up. One of my very favorite and one of the most popular um, episodes of the original series deals with uh, an ancient alien artifact that, you know, enables time travel and changes in history and makes a whole lot of problems. So <laughs> it's very cool to me that, you know, we have all of these kind of almost primal stories that different people take in different directions. And I guess that's probably what I like about stories in general, whether it's movie or book or whatever. It's just the idea that it connects humanity together because we all have like these same ideas, but we all, you know, explore them in different ways. And I love that. We have only so many stories to tell. You know, there's only so many notes on a piano, right? Yeah. There are only so many notes in general. And so it's like we tell the same things, but it's in the way that we tell it where it's different. And it's interesting that you talk about Star Trek, the original series, not having as much budget as a film like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because now, I mean, I would argue that your television show could very well have as much, if not more, money than your movie, you it's know? a lot different now, for sure. Right? I mean, when you go back and look at Star Trek, the original series, they were working so hard with so little. Mm. I mean, you can physically see how, you know, the costumes deteriorate over the course of a season. And, you know, things just kind of look crummy. I mean, and I haven't even greatly watched the very, very old episodes before they were remastered. I mean, most of what I've seen is remastered, so... It doesn't look like, you know, a miniature enterprise, you know, on strings moving around, you know, so I haven't even seen that. But, you know, I'm I'm sure, so that makes me think that, like, when 2001 came out, that people were probably, like, blown away by how advanced the special effects and, you know, these models that were built were in this movie. The special effects, again, are the thing in this film. It's not a linear story in the traditional sense. It is a special effects story. It's to get you to think. It's, you know, when Kubrick was making the film, okay, he didn't have a beginning or end in mind 
for the film. You know, he didn't like to storyboard things. You know, I, I think he did maybe a few things for some of the space sequences, maybe none at all, but it was very minimal. And what he liked to do is figure it out in the editing room, which was difficult because that meant more work, you know, for everyone else on the team. But he always was just trying to find the story. He wanted to, to let it happen. He had certain things that he would be, you know, zeroed in on. For instance, while we're talking about this Dawn of Man section of 2001, one of the things that he wanted is he wanted the mother ape to have breasts that could actually produce milk. And, okay, so <laughs> they actually went and they got two chimps, okay, that were on the, the milk drinking age. Their names were Johnny and Timmy. Uh, they got... <laughs> They got them from the circus, and so, you know, they tried to do this with having a real chimp suckle from this fake breast, you know, on, on an actor. Uh, it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> they abandoned it. The funniest thing was the person from the circus said, you know, Johnny and Timmy have only drank out of plastic cups. That's funny. So it's like, you know, you do this whole thing to have, you know, the authenticity of this mother-child relationship, right? And show how we're like the primates. And it's like, no, I mean, we don't really have, you know, any uh, contact here between mother and child. <laughs> and Johnny and Timmy are like, you know, removed <laughs> from that natural world. <laughs> yeah, Johnny and Timmy, you know, they like a coffee with a few Splenda, you know? That's it. No milk for uh, them. So what you're saying about Kubrick finding the film in, like, the edit, I think is accurate, according to other things I've read. We have uh, Douglas Trumbull, who is the special photographic effects supervisor on this, went on to work on several other movies, including Blade Runner, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Close Encounters, so... What we think of space is really based on Trumbull and this other guy, Brian Johnson, uh, who also worked on Aliens, Empire Strikes Back, Alien. Um, so these guys created what we think of as space. Um, but yeah, Trumbull said that they shot 200 times more than what ended up on screen for <laughs> 2001. And I did a little bit of math. Thanks, calculators. Um, because otherwise I've never figured this out on my own. But that would mean they shot about almost 500 hours of footage. Wow. Which is a lot of footage. That'd be a long movie. I mean, I I don't know. That seems like maybe an overestimate, but who knows? Because Kubrick was exhaustive as a filmmaker. Yes. In other movies that we've seen with him, it's the same thing. I mean, he knows what he wants eventually, <laughs> um, but getting to it is, like, really a marathon. Um, and, again, like I'd said earlier, it took a couple years for this movie to even come out. Like, I, I had seen something with Keir DeLay, who plays Bowman, Dave Bowman, uh, in the film, talking about, you know, yeah, <laughs> the movie came out in 1968, <laughs> but we were shooting it, like, two years earlier. So... For, for him and the other actress, that was a pretty weird experience. And a side note, before I move on on the Star Trek thing, um, is that Gary Lockwood, who plays Frank Poole, um, was also in Star Trek. He was actually in 
the original series season one episode where no man has gone before. Uh, that was also shot in 1966, so wow. exactly the same times, the same year that he was working on uh, 2001. He was also filming this episode. Uh, I was playing Gary Mitchell, uh, who kind of becomes a space Superman, and this was the second pilot episode of Star Trek. So if you go back and watch it, it's kind of fun because um, Spock looks weird. He has like... <laughs> a greener tint and his eyebrows are really bushy and pointy. Um, and this was actually the, uh, initial appearance really of Captain Kirk, um, at least when they shot, uh, because the previous pilot had had, um, Captain Pike instead. So it's really cool. And if you go back and watch where Nomad has gone before and watch, 2001 you can just like be blown away at the fact that this one guy was you know spacefaring in two of the most influential things that have ever come out about science fiction that's incredible yeah i'm gonna bring up two things one is related one is worthless <laughs> um the first is yes stanley kubrick i know for instance on the shining he would do 80 100 takes mm -hmm. he would really go hard so producing that much footage, I can completely see happening. Because like you said, he was a perfectionist. He had an exact vision. The other thing that I'll bring up, this is worthless. You mentioned Gary Mitchell, and you also mentioned Dave Bowman. My dad, when I was younger, actually worked with Gary Bowman. <laughs> that's funny. So we've got that going it's for us. It's a very common... Yeah, I think that's an interesting point in a way, though, because these are kind of just like regular guys in space and they're always kind of treated like that mm -hmm. um i feel that in both the book and the film you really just see these people as you know this is their job they're doing their job which happens to be in space on the way to jupiter uh, that was the difference between also the book and the movie is in the book they're going to saturn but in the movie it was too hard, I think, to make the rings, or they didn't have enough money, so they had to go with Jupiter instead. But Jupiter's the biggest planet. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. Do you have an opinion? I think it worked out better, frankly. I think it was a much better choice. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the exact information. There was something with space exploration later where actually I think they were um, closer in guessing Jupiter somehow. I don't have the, the, the mission. I don't have any of the data. So, again, this really doesn't say a whole hell of a lot. Other than, yeah, I, I think that worked out good because uh, <laughs> I think something happened later on there. But, yeah, that's what I got. But I can tell you this, though, and this is very interesting. So, Arthur C. Clarke, again, superstar. Arthur C. Clarke, on July 20th, 1969, appeared as a commentator on CBS News for the broadcast of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That is really cool. See? I think that's really cool. I mean, and that's another great point to make, is that this movie came out before people had landed on the dang moon. Yep. Uh, about, it came out on April 3rd of 1968, wide release after premiering the day before in Washington, D.C. So, between April 3rd of 68 and July 20th of 69, you know, that was the time frame between when this movie came out and when people walked on the moon. 
Well, what's also interesting is something we talked about earlier, which was initially this film was not a financial success. People were not going to the movie theater to see this. Yeah. No, they weren't. I mean, the only way that this actually ended up kind of sticking around, and I love this story because it feels so late 60s, (laughs) is that theater owners were keeping the movie because, like, you know, late teen, early 20s folks were coming in on, you know, psychedelics to watch, like, the wormhole sequence at the end uh, and trip out. So (laughs) they kept coming back to, like, trip and watch this kind of trippy sequence um, that's very of the time, and that kept the movie going, which I think is hilarious. But, you know, even if it wasn't a commercial success... Again, there is no way that we could talk about every influence that this film has had on really pop culture as a whole, because this certainly is the birth of Star Wars. Yes. I mean, there's no question. Without 2001, there would be no Star Wars. And that is the legacy. That is what this did for us. This film was seen by all of the future filmmakers. And they said, I want to do this. Yeah, it just awoke their imagination about yes. space in a way that, you know, maybe it had already been happening. You know, maybe they had already been interested in space because of what was going on in the world. But seeing it on screen and the way that Kubrick showed it just really set off like a nuke in George Lucas's head, you know. <laughs> um, and I think that's pretty amazing. So I think now is a good time to actually talk more about the influence, you know, the 2001 had. Now, I mean, again, we're, we're pretty aware of a lot of it, but let's actually talk about the influence that it had on music mm, for okay. a moment. Okay. So to do that, what we're going to do is talk about the monolith for a moment. So the monolith in the film, uh, originally that was conceived, I think, as a pyramid, and then it was going to be some kind of crystalline block. Uh, Then it ended up as this monolith. And the way that they did that was they actually made it from wood and they sprayed it with a paint that had graphite added to the mix. So it looked really smooth. It looked really shiny. But but the problem was it would also attract an inordinate amount of dust. So they needed to keep it wrapped up all the time. And also, if anybody touched it, there'd be like greasy fingerprints on it. Oh, God. So they'd immediately have to take it back and get it (laughs) resprayed. In addition, okay, the lights were actually hot enough that they would tend to warp the wood. Oh, Lord. Or blister the paint. They constructed several monoliths. It's pretty impressive how they're able to do it, though, because it does then end up just looking kind of like this absence of anything mm-hmm. rather than an actual thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. So this is where it gets interesting. Okay, so 1976, Led Zeppelin has an album called Presence, and that's spelled P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, okay? And so Jimmy Page, I will give you the quote from Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page says, There was no working title for the album. The record jacket designer said, When I think of the group, I always think of power and force. There's a definite presence here. That was it. He wanted to call it obelisk. To me, it was more important what was behind the obelisk. The cover is very tongue-in-cheek. 
to be quite honest. Sort of a joke on 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think it's quite amusing. So what they're talking about in this is that they have this, this shape, okay? It's like this 12-inch, you know, black shape. It like kind of has a stand, you know? I mean, they place it uh, on the cover. They place it in the middle of a dining table where this family is seated, and everybody is just smiling at it in the center of the table. Everybody's just looking at it like... They really are enjoying it, and you're just like, what the hell is this? And it is very funny. Like, when we watched 2001 this time, I actually thought about presents, and I never had made that connection before. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, it's kind of like the thing from presents, um, which I don't know what we're calling it. I guess the this guy or whoever who designed the cover was, was probably thinking about an obelisk, but it doesn't look like that. No, I don't know what it looks like. I got to tell you, I mean, to me, in a lot of the actual scenes, the the way it's it's shown, the way people are reacting, and the actual appearance of the object, it looks like a dildo. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that regard. And it is funny because people are just like holding it or looking at it, and it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, you go through just all these different scenes of people being really excited about it. I think the one that, to me, because it's just the most absurd, it looks like they're in front of a bank vault, a policeman is there, (laughs) you know, and they have kind of on like just a a jack, on a pallet jack, they have the obelisk, (laughs) you know, and it looks like maybe bank managers are standing around. It makes you think that there was like a bank heist or something. Or maybe this is a precious object that's going in the vault. You don't know what the hell's going on, but everybody's looking at it. There, there are guys in this high-tech kind of office, like, studying it. There's, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, I like the doctor one. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <clears throat> but, like, the funny part to me is just that it it's, like, everybody's so pleased, you know, yes. and interested in it. And, yeah, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I think that the best thing would be to just see it for yourself. So I think that, you know, John will put up an Instagram post maybe um, with a selection of these photos so you guys can see it. But it's really hilarious that it it that it was done this way. And it, it kind of takes this monolith object from 2001 <laughs> and makes it just funny. <laughs> it's just kind of silly, but I love that. They actually um, produced... 1,000 numbered 12-inch tall black objects, as they called it, for Swan Song, you know, to use in the promotion of Led Zeppelin presents. So, <laughs> oh, man, I bet those are expensive. You I can bet. get one now. I mean, Look I it just, up. It'd be interesting. It would be. Like, I mean, that's just insane. But it's it's a real, real joke with them. It's it's hilarious. It, all, it feels kind of like Monty Python-esque to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, I definitely see that. And that was around the same time as well. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, again, this movie is like a cultural touchstone because, you know, the I, I just found out, I did not ever know this, that they were considering having Pink Floyd score in the film. Wow. At one point. And I think we associate Pink Floyd with space a ton, like... You know, when in the 90s, it started to be this thing, or maybe it was before that, and I didn't know about it until the 90s, 
um, for like the observatories to like have these laser light Pink Floyd shows where you're like, you know, looking on the ceiling at like the lasers and listening to the music. You know, did you ever go to one of these? Yes. I like that when you like did that with your hand, I actually looked up. <laughs> like I was like, oh yeah, the laser light show. I talk with my hands. I'm like visualizing it here in the closet. We're just going to do like a Pink Floyd laser light show. Picture it, Sicily, 1946. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I think that would have been interesting, but it would have been a really different movie because the use of um, Alzo Sprock Zarathustra and uh blue, blue danube, danube. Yeah. yeah which uh is really used throughout the film is so right to me you know i couldn't imagine anything else being in there and actually when this film came out this got young people interested in this older music this orchestral music they wanted to hear these classical pieces so it reinvigorated the spirit of this older music, which I love, too. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's cool, though, because apparently if you listen to Echoes um, from Metal on Pink Floyd, um, it's well synchronized with the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite segment hmm. of the movie. We haven't done that, but I think we should go do it, like, ASAP. Absolutely. And I see never what happens, it. because we... <laughs> I mean, we like, you know, I don't know, it's weird, but like we've done the Wizard of Oz, Pink Floyd thing, and it's cool. I don't know if it's intentional, but it's cool. <laughs> it matches up so well. I think there has to be at least some intention in it. Yeah, but like Echoes, uh, we got to check it out because supposedly it goes along really well with that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, this movie lends itself to music so well anyway, because it's so silent. Well, one of the biggest transitions we have in the film. OK, this is interesting. So, again, this just kind of talks about Stanley Kubrick and the way he thinks and the way that he works. Arthur C. Clarke saw Stanley Kubrick walking back to his office and he was like throwing a broom up in the air and catching it. And it's like after they had done the, the Dawn of Man sequence. And he's like, oh, my God, he's actually figuring out, you know, when the bone goes up in the air and it turns into the spaceship. <laughs> you know, that's the way that, you know, that, that he would think, you know, Stanley Kubrick would really play and then he would he would find it. Yeah, that's that's so cool, because that actually is a cool part. Again, first time I saw it, um, I mean, we uh, had read this great thing about Rock Hudson quote after <laughs> he saw the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, when you watch this, especially for the first time, there's definitely going to be what the hell was that kind of a situation. And apparently, uh, at the premiere, Rock Hudson was there. And when he walked out, he said, will someone tell me what the hell this is about? <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that we all kind of have that. <laughs> in the book, they explain things a little bit more. Like that spaceship that the bone turns into is actually supposed to be like a nuclear weapon. Huh. So there's like supposed to be all these space nukes in orbit. What? I didn't get that. I yeah. didn't get that. Okay. <laughs> and the, the original idea, if I'm not jumping ahead too far here, 
with, you know, um, Space Baby coming back at the end. Oh, yeah. Was that, you know, he blows up all the space nukes and kind of cleanses the Earth, you know? Oh, my God. Superman 4, the quest for peace. Superman takes all the nukes. <laughs> and, he, like, he puts them in a sack and he throws them. Well, you know? you know what? And Superman is kind of like a savior space baby himself. Wow. So, another connection has been unru- un- has been revealed. See, it's, again, I love how you can see everything going back to this film. And I want to talk about the influence with, you know, other films that I've noticed. I'm sure there's a million more. Yeah, if we don't talk about the influences, we're just going to keep dancing. Dancing around the edge, tap dancing. So let's go for it. Dancing like a cat on the stairs? Exactly. Little dancing man. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Okay, so first off, of course, Star Wars, right? Now, Star Wars, I saw some things in 2001 visually that I was like, that is exactly the same. So the space station docking bay looks like the Death Star docking bay. You know, like, that's, I was just like, oh my god, that looks exactly the same. Like, you know, you got that white light around, it's kind of rectangular, and you just fly on in, you fly on out, and you have your your force field there protecting it. I was like, wow, okay. You know, it's like, it's right there. I mean, it even makes me, like, Return of the Jedi. You know, I think of the Emperor's ship coming in. It's, yeah, crazy. Okay, next one. So, the rear shot of the shuttle to the moon looks like the rear of the escape pod from A New Hope. Okay. So, you know, when we have 3PO and R2-D2 take the escape pod out at the beginning, if you look at the rear, you look at like, I don't know what you want to call it, the exhaust, the jet ports. I can't think of what the word is to explain it's all made it. up. <laughs> Well, no, it's like the same thing that you would see like on a fighter jet, right? <laughs> you know, you have the engines and the turbines, I don't know, space turbines. Anyway, it, it looks exactly the same. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> okay, the next thing. Now, this is, this is you know, kind of whatever, but I'll give it to you anyway. Death Star, the Death Star is actually mistaken for a moon when they first see it. And it's like, oh, wow, it's a moon. There you go. Wasn't that great? That was a great point. Yeah. We'll... We should pick up the pace. <laughs> okay. This one's much better. So the front ball, I would say, of Discovery 1 actually looks like the Death Star. Now that's pretty good. Yes. And also I think when they are um, flying to the moon, when Haywood Floyd, who we haven't ever mentioned. Not yeah, yet. Or Hal, by the way. <laughs> we didn't get there yet. We've been going in order. I know, I'm joking. Oh, okay. Um, I just think, like, Hal is such a big part of this, and I was just like, we haven't even talked about Hal. That happens to us. Um, it looks like that kind of spherical kind of thing as well. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Lots of spherical objects in this film. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And then we also, of course, have that... Discovery, you know, Discovery 1 is super long, just like the Star Destroyer. And that's a good transition into Alien, because that's similar, too. Yeah, they have that tracking shot right across the ship. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like you have, like, all of these similarities. Now, another one in Alien, okay? So, the displays, you know, that we see in Discovery 1 
or even in the moon shuttle throughout. You know, we have all these different displays in the spacecraft that show up. And, you know, they'll have like these charts and they'll have like these, you know, three letter codes that pop up like N-U-C-V-E-H, M-E-M, A-T-M, N-A-V, right? And this looks very similar to what we see in both Blade Runner and Alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they have feedback that. monitors and... Yeah, it's yeah. just like they've got it, they've got it right there. And whenever I see like you know that old you know square screen and it's red, I always want to see purge, purge <laughs> because of Blade Runner. Um, you know, Ash, okay, in Alien is very much like HAL nine thousand. Artificial intelligence going rogue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, artificial intelligence. I think you probably have this point. Sorry, I'm stomping it. Artificial intelligence working in a different direction than the human intelligence because they have their own directives from leadership that don't align <laughs> with human, you know, survival, really. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's just like we have, you know, again, the, the sleep chamber for Dave and Frank I'm not talking like the deep hibernation chamber because those kind of look like a sarcophagus. <laughs> yeah, they have a mummy look. Right, but that ties in again to, you know, Alien and Ridley Scott's deal with making it look Egyptian and ancient mm. because that's what that's what he was interested in. But the standard sleep chambers for Dave and Frank, they look very similar to the hibernation chambers in, you know, Alien Aliens going forward. Um, you know, it's, it's a very similar design. Mm -hmm. Also, we have in 2001, we have crew members with very specific duties. And in 2001, they go so far as to not wake up people unless they have a job. Yeah. You know, an alien, everyone is awake or everyone is asleep. That seems to be the way that they do it. And also like an alien, you know, everyone has a specific job. You know, you are the captain, you are the navigator, you are the engineer, mm -hmm. you are the linguist, whatever the case may be. And that goes back to that almost like uh, military style, uh, military style chain of command. Yeah, it's it's just the same type of situation. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in 2001, it's like USAA, I think mm -hmm. is what it is. I think it's the United States of America Aeronautics, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. Well, and it's interesting when Haywood Floyd goes up to the moon where they've discovered, I think they're calling it TMA-1, because it's like the monolith and it's magnetic. And it's the U.S. people have discovered it, and they're really trying to keep it a secret. Yes. It's, it's basically, you know, it's evidence of life outside of humans and so they don't want to like let people know about it because they're afraid it'll cause like a lot of crazy panic and stuff yes yeah tma1 tycho magnetic anomaly thank you, you one you know that that's what they've they've to gone together together we achieve more <laughs> <laughs> this is true we're a good team right. we got it we got it but yeah no that is very similar because that's again what we have an alien Right? We have this alien life. We need to go check it out. And again, humans, secondary, you know, getting this creature primary. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Same deal. Yeah. Interesting. We also it's like a different take on it because this is like 
government in 2001, and then Alien, it's like a private company. Yeah, Wayland yutani But same deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we also have in this, we have the front window of the moon shuttle also puts you in mind of the window, the, the front window of the Narcissus and Alien, where we can see Ripley in there. Yes. You know, it's that same type of uh, shot. Also, we have in both 2001 and Alien, okay, we have, you know, this thing where we want to make things look larger. So in 2001, when the moon shuttle is lowered into the base, you know, we see these really tiny people, you know, in a window, and that's to give it that scale. And that's very similar, again, to what Ridley Scott did in Alien, because he actually had, like, his kids or someone's kids in these spacesuits, you know, and they had that, you know, next to their spaceship, just to give it that much more size. Um, we also have, you know, that the Nostromo is, you know, a really big ship, just yeah. like Discovery 1. And we Huge. talked about, yeah, yeah. and we, we have a shot, which is very similar, once again, of showing that and same thing in star wars again where you have like the huge ship you know going across the top of the shot and you're like looking at the underside of it just to it gives you like this idea of how huge the scale is of everything oh yeah oh yeah and i mean we also do have i mean again this is kind of another shithouse one but i'll give it to you anyway so in alien ash lets Dallas and Lambert and Kane back onto the ship after, you know, Kane has been attacked by the alien, the face hugger, and it's attached to him. And we have Hal, who does not let Dave Bowman back onto the ship. Now, we do have different reasons there, of course, mm. but I just thought it was interesting of like, you know, one robot's like, come on in, and the other one is like, stay out. But in both cases, it is to help not the human. Yeah, it's to further the secret mission that the AI is on. Yeah. Well, and also in the case of Hal, which gets so weird, is it's like it's also to cover his fuck up, his mistake. You know what I mean? He doesn't want anybody to know that he made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. In the book, again, it kind of gets into his frame of mind if i can call it that he's a he's a machine but he certainly has kind of a personality and a frame of mind yeah um and we really get to see that more which makes it all the more kind of sad i guess when he has to be shut down anyway well when he gets shut down i mean that that's one of the saddest moments you know like it, it's just like when you're seeing someone that you know that has, you know, Alzheimer's, that their mind is going, and you see it slipping away. Oh, it's awful. It, it's horrendous. And then Even you... he's a villain, sort of. He's like, a, he's like a villain where, you know, he's relatable, and he feels like a person. He, he does. He does feel like a person. And it's like Dave has no choice. He has to shut him down. He has to stop him for good. And it's like Hal's like, no, 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 and Dave... Just he has what he has to do, and he does it. It's just like a soldier with orders. He is not paying attention. You know, he has shut off his humanity to complete this task. Now, that is to save himself. So yeah. it makes sense. Would you save a computer or a human? Easy question, you know. Right. Well, but, is it an easy question? I guess that is the question. Like, you know, you Star Trek deals with this question several times. There's a great episode of TNG 
that deals with whether Data is a human or mm. not. Um, because he is a robot. I mean, he's basically a really high-functioning AI android. And, you know, it's like, but is he human or not human? And, of course, in that show, he's, you know, in human form and everything. So, <laughs> it kind of makes you uh, take him as a human differently than you would Hal. But Hal has thoughts. Hal seems to have developed feeling Hal, you know, can get jealous and angry and, yeah. you know, have all of these human emotions. So, it's it's one of the most interesting things about this movie. Well, when Hal just is like, I can feel my intelligence slipping away. And you're like, oh my God. Ugh. And then he sings the song. Oh my God. Just, oh, when he sings Daisy. Oh. And it's just winding down. It's like euthanasia is happening or something. It's awful it's horrendous the, the fact that hal generates more of an emotional response than frankly any other human character in the film does tell you something and i also think you know a big part of that has to do with the voice actor douglas rain who played you know hal he was hal 9000 the voice in 2001 also in 2010 excellent 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 you know, just a nice, smooth, even voice. Yeah, when he doesn't sound robotic, he does sound human. So, you know, he has kind of a flatness to his tone, but it still kind of feels like a human voice. Mm -hmm. It's really well done because it's so well balanced. Yeah, you can feel it. And also with the song Daisy, that's actually a song that they had a computer sing. You know, that was one of the things that they had them do back in the earlier days of, like, computer programming. Yeah, because when they were trying to get computers to talk, they found that getting them to sing kind of made it more real. Um, and so they would do that. And we, we saw this in some of the bonus material of the disc where they actually had a computer that had been taught to sing this that song. Oof. It, it's so hard because it really is... With Hal, you know, he is in top form, and we see this fast degradation that takes him all the way back down to the bottom of the staircase and then just into nothingness because Daisy was really that first breakthrough. It, it's, yeah, it, it, oh, God. Yeah, that, again, it really gets me. It's he remembers, very tragic. Yeah. He remembers when he was born, you yeah. know. I mean, when Alien, it's much easier because Ash is awful. Yeah, there's no question. Ash is much less sympathetic than Hal. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Yeah, and it's like you want Ash to go down. Ash can't go down soon enough. Yeah. And when, you know, he gets set on fire and literally turned into Ash, you couldn't be happier. No, you're like, thank goodness. <laughs> right? You don't feel bad about that. No, but then in Aliens, they flip the script and you love Bishop. This is true. You love Bishop and you want nothing bad to happen to Bishop. And he is altruistic and the best man on planet Earth. Even though he's not a man. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's so crazy. So here's another one with Aliens. So when we have Haywood Floyd on the moon, he is having a meeting you know, with everyone there, like a debriefing. And this is very similar to the boardroom scene in Aliens, when Ripley is talking to the board of Wayland yutani about destroying the Nostromo. And it's just like, oh, wow. You can just really, you can see it. You can see it in the scene. Yeah, the bureaucracy aspect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget about the airlock. Oh, my God. How could I forget about the airlock? The airlock is something that just is across everything. And if we're talking about aliens, right, 
We have it in Alien and Aliens. The airlock plays a massive part. Yeah. A massive part. Absolutely the same thing in 2001. We have a very pivotal moment dealing with an airlock. Yeah. I mean, we have... This is something where the book and the film differ once again. And in the book, what happens is Hal just opens the airlock. And Dave is inside the ship. And he has to run into like this little cubby and get some oxygen for a second. And then he goes out there and, you know, tries to, to set everything right. Um, in the actual film, what happens is Hal locks him out outside of the ship. And the way that he is able to get back in is by actually like shooting himself out of the airlock and onto the spaceship and then closing that airlock and you know then he's able to uh you know re regain pressure and atmosphere it's so crazy. it's a really intense sequence and very well done oh my god but how they did it was crazy like here delay actually like i think or a stunt person or whoever like shot into this hole and like it looked like somebody was gonna break their neck <laughs> It looked horrible. I think it was him. And he really just slams into yeah, the wall. Yeah, he smacks into the end and then gets zapped back to the to the front. It's wild. It was really uh, good. But also, like, there's a lot of stress in that scene because you don't know what's going to happen. Like, he's stuck. He's stuck outside the ship. You know, what does he have? He's just in the little pod. Like, and it's just a repair pod. There's not, like, a huge oxygen supply this thing can't like travel anywhere really you know it's just meant to like go outside the ship and do repairs so it's like he has to come up with a plan and the plan is extreme but it's like literally the only option he has because hal is not letting him back in and also dave does not have his helmet nope. so i mean that makes this all the more dangerous he has a very brief window of time yeah otherwise you know? he's freezing to death and exploding or whatever yeah it just it's no good he's no going good. down yeah. It, it's yeah i i don't know i really think that the action in 2001 is fantastic the suspense is incredible we also have in both the alien and aliens films really i mean i think we can go across the whole franchise we always have like that weirdly sexual architecture oh yeah you know, and in this, I mean, I feel like there's no exception. You know, there's actually a shot. I believe it's Dave. He's going down like this corridor. It's like the famous shot with like the white and black. And we see him from behind walking down. And he actually, as he goes through this corridor, he comes out of something that really looks like a vaginal opening. He just comes out of that. So it's like he comes out of kind of this birth canal, and this is into the room with all the ships, you know, with, uh, you know, the airlock, so he can then go outside, you know. And, and it's just like, and then he gets in the pod, and, you know, and he goes outside, and it, it's almost like he's being born and also we have, you know, with Frank Poole, you know, when Hal just kind of cuts him loose in space, it really looks like, a, you know, an umbilical cord is cut. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's like we've got a lot of a lot of birth and death, you know, built into these films. And of course, you know, we have the, the space baby 
um, <laughs> you know, later on. Yeah, you know, well, Dave, like, rapidly aging and then being reborn as a space baby. The, <laughs> Giant space baby. That's how it goes down, man. So it's like Terminator. And, you know, what we have there is like Hal is like Skynet, you know, because Skynet goes rogue and just kills the world. And Hal, you know, he's running his own program. And, you know, humans are not anything that he's concerned about. Yeah, it's the same kind of deal again where you have an AI that has its protocol and it's following that and you can't stop it. So, like, I guess the lesson is you have to be very, very careful about AI because it can only do what you tell it to do. And if you mess up, then you're done. Yeah, and it's also, again, we have Aliens and Terminator, both James Cameron creations. Let's remember that, you know? It's like, again, it's like, oh, wow. Once people get tuned into a certain frequency, I feel like they stay there. And when it's a really rich one, like 2001, why would you ever want to leave? No, you, you know? wouldn't. There's too much to explore. Yeah, I mean, we also have, of course, Spaceballs, you know? <laughs> I mean... Boy, we love bringing up Spaceballs. We do, don't we? Like, every single film is Spaceballs. Uh, have we talked about Spaceballs? No, but we're just going to bring it up every episode. Might yeah. as well. Right? So the ship in Spaceballs, you know, was very long. You know, Mel Brooks, as President Scrooge says, it's like a mile long. <laughs> You know, and it's very funny because they do have that long tracking shot of the ship in Spaceballs. And I believe it says something. There's like a bumper sticker on the back that says, we break for nobody. It's funny. Yeah. Again, we had Predator, which was just last week, and we have the control pad on the Predator's arm. It really puts you in mind of the control pad on the spacesuits in 2001. It's yes. like a design element. I mean, I guess it makes sense because... When you're in space and you have the stuff on, like, that just makes sense to have it connected to you. Yeah. We also have the movie Inner Space. Inner Space is an older movie from the 80s that stars Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan, Martin Short. And in that film, it's all about these pods going inside of the human body. And one of the pods that actually goes inside of a human body looks very similar to these repair pods. Um, it actually belongs to a villain. You know, he has like, I don't know, like a saw and some other weird shit, you know, kind of on his mechanical hands. There's like the good pod that doesn't have that, which is manned by Dennis Quaid. And then we have our bad guy. So that, that's, again, it's small, but it, it's just a design element that really popped out because it looks very similar. Also, this has nothing to do with anything, but the repair pods in 2001 if you look at them from the side they kind of look like a snail <laughs> that's funny yeah, yeah they're like around and then they have the little arms like doo, 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 doo. yeah see it see it's it's crazy stuff so going back to one other thing this is not having to do with any other movie other than 2001 the moon shuttle okay that we talked about in this film actually looks like it has a head, eyes, nose, maybe even hair. It looks like kind of an Egyptian god. And once again, it's bringing us back to that Egyptian influence that Ridley Scott wanted to have an alien. Also, I guess there is another connection. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, everything's kind of anthropomorphized um, in that, like, uh, the windows do look like eyes and things like that. But it's funny because Hal is not really anthropomorphized. He's just like... You know, the red light. Yeah, he's very creepy is just that red light, you know, because yeah. there's no feeling, 
you know, the only thing that you can use to read Hal is his voice. But since his voice is so even, you can't really tell. And it puts you at unease. Like, throughout the film, when he's talking, even before, you know, he becomes like a murderer, I'm like, woo, I just don't feel comfortable around Hal. Okay? And if you want to know what Hal 9000, you know, the Hal part of it stands for, here's Georgia to tell you. <laughs> heuristically programmed algorithmic computer so h-a-l a lot of people thought that it was uh the the uh, that it was ibm stepped back one letter i guess um because i h comes for i a comes for b l comes for m but it actually means heuristically programmed algorithmic computer according to arthur c Clarke pretty neat again it might just be one of those coincidental things i think when you're really smart i just think you're you're going to the same place things just happen a lot of times especially when you're writing something i feel that you know your consciousness kind of ends up tapping into your unconscious and mm -hmm. you come up with some different things that are pretty interesting um, I would also like to say that we talked about a lot of influences on film and music and things like that, but there is also an actual technology influence from this movie in a couple of ways. Like, um, there is a video call used in this movie. Um, it's not like exactly the way that we do video call now, but video calls, I think, are such more of a thing than they used to be. And it was always like this idea of something that you would have. Another thing is that, you know, Dave and Frank are using these like tablets to watch the news while they're eating dinner. And Samsung um, tried to argue that their tablet, their Galaxy tablet, didn't infringe on the iPad because of Dave and Frank using these pad devices. I guess they weren't successful, but I actually think that is a successful... I mean, I would have gone with them, because also we have, uh, in Star Trek, people have, like, these pads that they're walking around with, and it looks like they just are holding, like, a Kindle or something. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. So, you know, it's just... I guess it's just the thinking that humans have about these different devices for these different types of technologies that we would like to use. And I always think it's fun to go back in time and see how people envisioned that happening. Yeah, the vision's the future. I mean, when I was in school, like by 1998, I think we were supposed to have flying cars. Oh, yeah. When we were kids, we were like watching the Jetsons and stuff like this. And that was just like accepted that that was absolutely going to happen. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like what I, I guess I was saying at the beginning that you know, in the 60s, we were very invested in the idea of these technological advances and exploring space and, you know, overcoming our human problems by looking outside of the world or, you know, looking for other types of solutions that were technology-based. And then when, you know, we got into the 70s, we kind of ran into problems that prevented us from being able to have the vision in the same kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's kind of like a Gen X thing, like this when Gen X came along. And that's, I think, why Gen X is so <laughs> negative and pessimistic in comparison to like this optimism of the 60s. Um, because, you know, people were born into a world that... You know, you couldn't look outside because you were too caught up in what was going on 
inside. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. But, you know, that's why we don't have these things. That, that's not to say that we haven't made technological advancements. We have. But they're much more related to our actual functional um, existence. You know, we've made things easier for us. We've made communication a lot easier. Um, but we haven't been looking outside until, you know. I, I mean, we had NASA. We had things like that as well. But I think, you know, in the 80s, we also had, like, the Challenger explosion, which was really tragic, especially, you know, I think for people of your age, my age, um, because we were, you know, in second, third grade, I believe, mm -hmm. when that happened. And I, I feel like I remember, like, actually watching it happen on television, you know, after we had been following it, because Krista McAuliffe was the teacher, you know, and everybody was excited because it's just, you know, a regular person is going to space. And then the thing exploded. Yeah. And it was just like really upsetting and it makes you just be like i don't know about going to space like maybe we aren't ready to go to space and things like this so i think that we are seeing exploration happen differently now like more unmanned exploration like you know the rover or the james webb and the these amazing images that we're getting back from space my hope is that those things kind of reinvigorate our interest in space travel. I think that the the question or argument against it that I always hear is that we need to spend the money here. You know, it's so expensive. We need to spend the money helping people here. And I just feel like it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And I could be naive and wrong. But I just feel that, you know, it's possible to do both. You know, it's possible to help people and also explore space. I agree. And I think that to advance the human race, we need to use our resources more wisely spread across these different options. I mean, we should be exploring space. We should be seeing what's going on out there. And at the same time, helping people on planet Earth to have a better life here. I think that we have enough resources to do those things. If people weren't hoarding them. <laughs> we most certainly have the resources to do both. I mean, it's something that is available and something that we could do and something that we should do. We should know who's around us. You know, you move into a new neighborhood, you want to know who your neighbors are, right? <laughs> I mean, why don't we do that? Why don't we go up and be like, hey, you want to have a party? You want to hang out? You know, I mean, one of the big things that I feel is when we were younger, our imaginations were constantly fueled by movies. And, you know, that's one of the things that I always found comfort in. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why I want to do this is because I always had my head in the clouds with dreams. I thought I would be in a spaceship. You know, and to see 2001, and again, as you mentioned, it is the grandfather of all of these ideas that really put it to film. It's the first science fiction film that really was able to take all of these effects and put them together in such a fantastic way yes. that we completely believed it. Yeah. And I mean, even with 2001, I mean, they ran out of time and money before they could complete everything that they wanted because originally they were going to have aliens at the end, you know, in that kind of like freak out scene at the end that you talked about that all of the younger folks were going to see, they were supposed to be aliens. And they had actually started, I don't know how far they got along in development of those aliens, but they didn't have the time and they didn't have the money. I think it's better that they didn't. It depends on what they were going to do. I mean, it's Stanley Kubrick. So, I mean, I believe that Stanley Kubrick would have pulled through. But 
I feel that the real purpose, though, of 2001 is to get your mind sparked. <laughs> That's and... funny, sparked. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it is really, the idea is really just to get your imagination going. And I think that, for me, is the reason that I like this film so much. I have not seen this nearly as much as other films. When I first saw it, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the silences. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know where we were in terms of a story. I didn't feel that I could follow it from beginning to end and understand where we were. So for me, um, I, I didn't have the same reaction, you know, that I do now. Now when I see it, I fully understand its value. And for me, I really enjoy watching, I would say, you know, that, that Haywood Floyd piece is probably my favorite piece you know i really enjoy that and i enjoy it i'd say up until about the time that hal gets killed that's kind of like my like core time with this film mm -hmm. because beyond that where we have the baby at the end i still don't understand it we've read the book i i've tried you know stanley kubrick much smarter man than i a complete visionary I believe in what he and Arthur C. Clarke created. Both of them say they don't know what the hell the ending is. So if they're fine with saying it, and Arthur C. Clarke, once again, just wants you to question and to think, they have certainly done that. I mean, we even see in Star Trek, the motion picture, it has, you know, an ending sequence, which is very similar to 2001. You yes, know? it does. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the special effects. Um, yeah. Because that scene, the way that they did that was interesting to me. And this was the Douglas Trumbull uh, creation. And basically how they got that kind of trippy wormhole scene, which is what I'm calling it, um, is that they were projecting a painting in the back that had all these colors and, and bright things. And then in front of that is another painting that's black, but just has like a slit in it, like a vertical slit. And it is representing kind of space. And then the slit is kind of representing like what's beyond space or this kind of passage that Dave is traveling through. And the way that they get it to look like that is by moving the background back and forth, the colorful background, while zooming in and out with the camera on that slit so that it looks like it's kind of flowing out of that. And I just think that's so brilliant that they were able to do that because it's special effect, special photographic effect, but it's done practically. And it looks as good as computer imagery really it really holds up i mean we also have the fact that they essentially created a ferris wheel kubrick spent seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars was budget to make this ferris wheel that's enormous amount of money but i guess it works because we're pretty impressed oh yeah i mean it's an iconic sweet <laughs> jesus it's an iconic sequence when you see Frank Poole running around, you know, and he's like, I don't know, like boxing? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? He's a tough guy, that Frank Poole. <laughs> well, they have to do something up there. But yeah, I think the idea was that artificial gravity would be created through this centrifuge effect. So they built this, basically a hamster wheel, and all the stuff in the room was affixed to the wheel. And they could either mount the camera to watch the room rotate, or they could use a dolly to follow the character, which is what happens in the pool scene. 
pool running scene, I guess I'll say. When he's running, kind of, it always makes me think of a hamster wheel. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And, you know, we actually talk about these rotating sets. It puts me in mind of Christopher Nolan in Inception. Oh, yeah. He yeah. definitely was influenced by those. Right? Back to the influences. I mean, God, like I said, that could have been the whole show. I know. These great influences influence great filmmakers of the future. And that's why I love this movie. Yeah. A lot of the effects in here are practically done. Like, I think that's the thing that keeps me interested in this movie even though there are long parts of it where like you're just watching something happen but like every time i'm kind of amazed by the space flight sequences from the beginning um just even the first one where haywood floyd is kind of sleeping in in zero (laughs) grav and his pen has floated away and the stewardess walks over to pick it up or grab it out of the air. The pen was stuck on this glass, plexiglass panel, that the outs like the outer edges of which are outside the camera frame, and they're just kind of turning that around <laughs> so it looks like it's floating. And if you look closely when the stewardess kind of plucks it out of the air, you can almost see that she's kind of pulling the tape um, to pull the pen off of the glass. But it looks amazing. Like, it really looks like it's floating. And, you know, she's walking around kind of like she, you know, supposedly has Velcro on her shoes, which is what's keeping her stuck to the floor. Um, And then the scene that always gets me is the stewardess, you know, walking down that hall and then into the kind of circular thing where she's like walks up around the wall and then she's upside down. And it's very difficult to explain how they got that scene, as well as the scene where Frank and um, Dave go down the ladder. Um, But there is an awesome YouTube video that very clearly shows um, how this works. But it's basically two kind of cylinders um, that are independently able to uh, spin or not. And so when they're walking down like kind of the first one, you can't see where one cylinder turns into the other one. Um, but they're walking down the first cylinder and it's stationary. And then as soon as they hit the second cylinder, the camera and the first cylinder start spinning at the same rate that the second cylinder had been spinning. So it's like this quick flip so that wherever the actors are is the part that's stable and wherever they aren't is the part that's turning. Um, I will definitely pull um, footage of that and put it up uh, on Instagram so that you can see it, but it is so cool. Like, I just highly recommend, you know, Googling uh, video on how this works because it's awesome. It's kind of mind-blowing that they were able to achieve this in this practical way and have it be so successful. Because it always got my imagination going. And I never, I mean, I consider myself a fairly intelligent person. I'm not an engineer. But I don't think I could have ever figured out how to make that happen. No. And I mean, you can actually see when they stop her cylinder, it's a little jarring. and She kind of almost stumbles for a second. And it's like, I always just took that to be part of the film, Yeah, you know? Well, it could have been because, you know, you could lose balance. I mean, 
I have a little bit of a vertigo disorder, so I'm doing that all the time anyway. Like, that's why I don't want to go to space. I totally understand. Look, I mean, I can't ride a bicycle. You know what I mean? I can't handle a car most of the time. I, I, there's no way in hell I'm getting on a motorcycle. So there is no fucking way <laughs> I'm getting behind the wheel of a rocket nah. and going up into space. I it's not going to happen. I would love to invite other people to go to space. Yes. But unfortunately, unless they can make it work for me and my ears, there's no way it's going to happen. Because I can't even be on a boat. God, can you imagine? That's what I always thought about. Like, when I was a kid, I wanted to be, you know, an astronaut. I thought it would be awesome. Who didn't want to this be an astronaut? This was pre-Challenger, by the way. But oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was, like, in first grade, I was like, oh, that would be great to be an astronaut. Not realizing I was going to grow up to, like, have inner ear problems and glasses. So... <laughs> But the idea of it was so exciting because when you're a kid, you know, all these space movies were so awesome. And it was like the thing that really did make your imagination fire up. Well, it did. And it also made the mundane seem interesting because Haywood Floyd falls asleep in the shuttle, like you said, when he's on his way to the moon. That's just like a regular commuter. Yeah. You know, it's just like it's an average day for him. So it's like you feel that in the future, you know, going to the moon is so commonplace that there's got to be something even more fantastical to fire your imagination, to make you feel incredible. But I, I think that 2001, one of its great strengths is making all of this in the future seem so plausible yeah. that you just don't question it. You, don't. you know, that airport where they meet up with friends and they have drinks, <laughs> you know, and we also have, you know, the video call sequence in the film. Now, this is different from in the book because Haywood Floyd actually like leaves a message, you know, but in the film, he actually does this live video call. Which, again, this ties in, you know, with Philip K. Dick. And, you know, he had that in his stories. And, you know, in Blade Runner, of course, you know, we have video calls. Mm. So it, it's like, it, again, all of these influences come together. And I think actually having the video call is much better because it's much more immediate. You know, you get that feeling. You get the feeling that, you know, this man has a family. Like, we yeah. didn't have to have a long explanation. We saw the daughter. It's like, where's your mom? You know, we got it. Yeah. You know, and it's very quick. Well, and it humanizes him a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, we kind of just see him as, like, this bureaucratic guy who's kind of, like, trying to, you know, keep things under wraps. Right. And, you know, just very businesslike. And this kind of gives him, like, uh, a different feel yeah I, I mean he's very much he feels very much uh like a politician all around definitely and just in the way he deals with people and, and there's something about his voice again makes you think of like jfk you know <laughs> kind of like that you know new england accent it's that, very clipped and just business-like yeah you know and also you know when he's talking to the russians he's really you know not at liberty to discuss anything <laughs> And he has that whole discussion, which is fun. So, well, we also have in the book, which we don't have in the film, it's like all of these press are around him right before he's going to go on his flight. So, it's like we get in from the book, we get that feeling that he is important and he is a big deal. And, you know, in the film, we still get that, you know, because to us, it's like not everybody just gets to go to the moon, yeah. you know, and then he has his secret mission, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a very, very well done film. And I, I love, again, how it makes you feel 
like anything is possible. And that's just for the future and also for filmmakers, like the sky isn't even the limit now. Like what what is the limit? You know, there is no limit. No. You know, I, I love that. I love that. Something else that I do think about when I think about 2001 is I think about Kubrick as a director and how he's interested in people being in isolation. You know, because we have 2001 and what do we have? We actually have Dave Bowman alone with Hal. Now, this is very much like The Shining when they're up at the Overlook. Right. But, you know, it's very similar here because we have, you know, Dave and Frank in space and then we have Hal, you know, and it seems like it's fine. But then it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, just like the Overlook. Mm -hmm. Also in this, we have a problem with the communication. Right. That that's what this whole thing is about. Yeah, we they're need, cut off. Right. And it's just like just like in The Shining, they lose their radio. They can't talk to anyone. So. It even, again, like to, to take the extra leap makes you think about the tagline of Alien. <laughs> yeah, in space, no one can hear you scream. And they were cut off from communications as well. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the scariest thing, you know, is being out there isolated and unable to communicate. And in the, in the book, we see that Dave has kind of made peace with the fact that he's done for. Yeah. Um, which I think is why it's easy for him in a way to kind of be transported through this alien portal into wherever the hell he goes. Nobody <laughs> knows. We don't have any info on that. And Kubrick and Clark are fine with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the book, it kind of goes into detail a little bit more about where he is and how it seems to be patterned after broadcast television and things, movies, things like this. Um, and he, you know, is then accelerated through the process of life and then rebirth, you know, and then comes back um, to Earth as like a save your space baby as we said i i mean i have to say i you know looked ahead i haven't read you know anything past 2001 but arthur c Clarke actually did four books in this series okay and i'm just gonna hit some points that i found kind of interesting so 2010 okay that was made into a movie with peter hyams and that book was published in 1982 the book was called 2010 Odyssey 2. Then we had 2061 Odyssey 3. That was published in 1987. And then we have the final chapter, 3001, the final Odyssey, which is published in 1997. So we actually have some of our characters from 2001 coming back in these other books. And that's what I found interesting. So get this. Haywood Floyd appears in 2010 and 2061, okay? 2061 actually brings back Haywood Floyd as an elderly man whose life has been extended because he's lived off of Earth in lower gravity, and he can't ever go back to Earth. Hmm. So that's like his story. So 3001, get this, brings back Frank Poole. <laughs> this is wild. Poole's freeze-dried body is discovered in space and revived. Oh, my God. All right, so here we go. Here we go. 
Hal 9000 and Dave Bowman appear in all of the books in the series, and eventually the two of them merge into a single entity called, quote, Hal Man <laughs> in 3001, The Final Odyssey. <laughs> I mean, this is, I, I love where it's headed. Like, if I have time, I am going to get into this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Halman? What, like, what's Halman going to be like? I do not know. That sounds crazy. Like, resurrected Frank Poole? I mean, again, it makes me think about aliens. Remember, they just find Ripley. She's floating yes. in space. They bring her back. It's just like all of this influence. Oh, it's a great, great film. Yeah, I'm really glad that we did decide to talk about this one because... Of the influentialness of it. Not only, you know, is it a great movie in itself, but the many, many films that we have enjoyed since this was made owe such a debt to so many things here. Not just the story, but also the visuals. Yeah. You know, again, like I said, like the guys who made this movie made up our idea of what it's like to be in space. Um, you know, of course we saw, you know, people landing on the moon a year and a half or a little bit less than that after this movie came out, but that doesn't look as real as this movie. <laughs> and I think a lot of people said that, you know, there's a whole rumor that Stanley Kubrick directed the footage of the moon landing and that was a hoax, right? Yes. And it's like, well, if he did, he would have made it look a lot better than it did. <laughs> so... I think that's interesting. It is. I mean, we also have, if we take a look back at Stanley Kubrick's life, he also worked as a photographer, and he also worked as a documentarian. So he has a real feel for what makes a film. You know, he has the experience of being able to frame shots. You know, I looked at some of his photographs and some of the special features of the disc, and he had a lot of group shots, and he was able to capture all of these very different specific reactions from people at the same time. And also, when you work in documentary, you get the real emotion. You feel what that real power is like. So when you go to make a film, you know, you want to have that same feeling you want to have that reaction yeah and all of the filmmakers love stanley kubrick because everything is intentional every shot is perfect every camera movement is perfect and if it is not exactly what he wants you to see down to the smallest detail you do it again yeah i mean and we see that in a director like nolan again mm -hmm. in inception with like the rotating sets in interstellar which someday we'll talk about as well yes something that we bandied about for this month um but probably we'll do in july instead in uh in advance of oppenheimer coming out so you know it it's just such a big deal this movie it's such a big deal to do a kubrick movie yes. for us um, because Kubrick is not necessarily a comforting kind of guy. <laughs> He's probably not going to show up <laughs> as much as we actually watch his movies, and just because he doesn't kind of fit our thing here. But being able to talk about a Kubrick movie was really a lot of fun um, because he is such an intense filmmaker. Yes. Um, his vision is so intense and focused. And you do definitely see that in this movie. You do. 
you do. Everything that he makes, he wants it to be the best. He wasn't necessarily a fan of science fiction, but he's making a science fiction movie and he wants it to be the absolute best science fiction film that has ever been made. He you know? changed the face of science fiction. Yes. I mean, if you go back to the movies before this, and I'm not saying that they're bad, they're just different. I mean, there was tons of alien movies, guy in a suit, alien movies in the 50s. You know, that was what was popular then. And then you go six years into the 60s and he's making this movie, yeah. which is nothing like those kind of wild, imaginative, kind of B-type space movies from the 50s. No, and Arthur C. Clarke actually said to Stanley Kubrick, here are some excellent science fiction films. I want you to watch them. Stanley Kubrick just hated them he thought it was <laughs> it was terrible and again when you have two geniuses working together there's going to be friction but it produces some incredible results another thing that i'd like to bring up is that arthur c clark did not like the fact that hal could read the lips of dave and frank he said this is not going to happen this is completely unrealistic <laughs> in the interview that I saw, he actually said, you know, he had changed his mind and wished he could tell Stanley he was wrong because there actually have been computers that have been trained to read lips. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a visionary. It is. You know, well, I think that's it for me. How about you? Well, I'm going to leave you with something stupid because I enjoy those stories. <laughs> and um, a long time ago when I was in college, I worked a part-time job at Kinko's. And many times when I would go to this job, I would forget to bring my name tag. Okay. And, um, you know, so I was like, what do I do? I need to have a name tag. And there was this one name tag that someone had left there. And the name on it was Ray Lovejoy. And I just laughed because I was like, this is not a real name. This is just some bullshit somebody made up. This is like a Saturday Night Live character. And so, like, you know, I'd put it on and I'd forget that I was Ray Lovejoy because everyone would start, you know, addressing me as such. So you may say to yourself, what the fuck is the point of the story? I'll tell you. The editor of 2001 A Space Odyssey was Ray Lovejoy. <laughs> not the man from Kinko's, but... A man named Ray Lovejoy. <laughs> yeah, I think That's that does amazing. it. That's amazing. I yeah. love it. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for 2001 and for our sci-fi series this month. It's been a lot of fun. And we have so many movies left on the floor to oh, yeah. talk about in a future sci-fi month. We hope you've enjoyed these picks. And we're moving into February. And, of course, Valentine's Day. Love is on everybody's mind. So we're going to do four weeks of movies that feature romance in some way. And the first one will be Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, the Joe Wright film version. Uh, and we'll be discussing that with Danny Zelliger and Kate Duffy. You may remember Kate from our Moonstruck episode. Uh, she and Danny are two of our greatest friends. And we cannot wait to chop it up with them next week. So tune in for that on the next Comfort Films. Until then, as always, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody. <laughs>